the old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to Morbid Symptoms, the podcast of the Time of Monsters newsletter. Um, and we are continuing to discuss the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and its uh, many consequences. I'm very happy to have on um, Anatole Levin, uh, who's a writer I've been following uh, for uh, since the 1990s when he was reporting out of Crimea. And um, he's, I think, one of the most thoughtful writers on uh, foreign policy, uh, not just with regard to Russia, but also the United States. Um, in the uh, uh, early part of the century, he wrote a very good book on American nationalism, which I think is like one of these sort of um, uh, really most thoughtful critiques of uh, the foreign policy of Bush Cheney. Um, and uh, so, I mean, Anatole and I are in sort of broad agreement with um, issues we've discussed in previous podcasts about the origins of the crisis in terms of NATO expansion uh, and the, the need to have, I guess, some sort of compromise uh, with a, uh, a neutral uh, Ukraine, um, perhaps modeled on Austria or Finland. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was advocating that for oh, years. Um, you know, as as the, the you know a perfectly reasonable way it seemed to me uh, to to bring about a settlement and and avoid war, and um, one one reason for that actually is that I'm you know I'm old enough to to have visited Austria and Finland during the Cold War, and of course they were barred by treaty from joining NATO, but if you visited them. They were completely Western societies. They were, in, in all real significant terms, they were completely part of the West. And not being in NATO was, was no obstacle to that. Um, so, yeah. yeah and, I mean, I think we're both like older than perhaps some of our listeners. And I remember very distinctly, like in the sort of 1980s, there's a sort of American neoconservative use of Finlandization as if that's a terrible thing. Like, oh, we don't want to be Finlandized. But, you know, if one looks at it, like in terms of an actual policy, like, you know, Finland is like, you know, one of the most enviable of uh, human societies and has, you know, was able to carve out a very good position um, of, uh, 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 of being a, a part of uh, the European economic uh, and cultural life um, and also uh, diplomatically um, independent. I mean, it, it's interesting. There's a... I mean, there have always been some people in the West open to this idea of a neutral Europe. I mean, George Keenan and um, uh, even Winston Churchill in the 1950s, you know, was talking about these possibilities. But there's also a kind of uh, reluctance as well. Uh, and I, I think that's a hurdle that, you know, the, 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 perhaps that's a war that needs to be fought, that we need to, you know, convince people of the advantages of, uh, of a more neutral Europe. Well, I mean, certainly in the case of, of Ukraine, uh, the President Zelensky has already acknowledged that since NATO won't fight to defend Ukraine and won't actually accept Ukraine as a member, uh, he uh, he is now willing, you know, to to support a treaty of neutrality with, of course, guarantees non-interference, sovereignty, territorial integrity. Uh, my fear, though, is that there are powerful forces in Washington who will actually try to block that. Um, or rather, I mean, block the whole peace settlement. I mean, there are other elements, of course, in a peace settlement. But Ukraine and Russia do seem actually now to be edging towards a peace that would end this loathsome war. And uh, I have to say, I, I am 
you know, it, I think it would be, you know, even if I may say so, by the standards of US diplomacy over the past quarter of a century, it would be shameful if the United States were to act to, to block a peace out of wider geopolitical agendas. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it uh, would be shameful. And I think, uh, but unfortunately, not un in keeping with certain tendencies in Washington, there has always been a kind of distrust um, of uh, proposals for neutralization. You know, go, as I said, going back to the 50s in Europe, but once he did it elsewhere in the Cold War, I mean, it's not widely understood, but the reason that the um, uh, Kennedy administration supported the coup uh, that led to the assassination of Diem in the um, 1963 was that Diem was like um, uh, making diplomatic overtures to North Vietnam towards have a, a neutral South Vietnam, uh, and so so that's a very dangerous situation where you know the the party on the ground wants to negotiate something in Washington um, is is for its own reasons is adamantly opposed. I I don't think one should uh, see that as a far fetched scenario at all. Um, but uh, I wanted so, but I mean, if one takes the sort of you know, good news, I, th I think you're right that Zelensky is clearly indicating some sort of outline for a reasonable peace. But of course, it takes two parties, and I I, I think the, the 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 what I'm unsure about, and I think has been the sort of black box in all of this, is Vladimir Putin. I think. Um, myself and I think you as well are, have been kind of been um, amazed at Putin's sort of brazen kind of behavior, which has gone far beyond his earlier aggressions, which were always very calculated and had uh, a very tangible, limited goals. Um, where, where are you sitting right now in terms of thinking what Putin's agenda might be? Well, I think it's changed actually since the beginning of the war because uh, his, the initial Russian strategy only makes sense uh, if they believed that Uk uh, Zelensky was going to run away, Ukrainian resistance was going to collapse, and that then uh, either they would appoint a Ukrainian government in Kiev or you know, the Ukrainians would make peace on all Russia's terms. Well, um, they totally underestimated the, the, the strength of the Ukrainian resistance. Um, and in consequence, they adopted a, I mean, really, I mean, lunatic military strategy of spreading, you know, Ukraine's a, a country of more than 200,000 square miles. The, the, the Russians attacked from six different directions with fewer than 200,000 men. And of those, it seems, deployed around half against Kiev, uh, which means, of course, that everywhere else, uh, they, I mean, in the south, they've made progress, but everywhere else, they've been fought to a standstill. Um, and uh, it, it's also true that, I mean, Western weapon supplies, uh, although low key, uh, have turned out to be exactly the kind of weapons that the Ukrainians needed for the sort of urban warfare uh, with which they have bogged down the, 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 the Russian army. Now you're looking at, at the United States not declaring a no-fly zone because that's too dangerous but supporting anti-tank drones, these switchblades, which will inflict tremendous damage on the Russians. Now, the, we don't, of course, know the, the exact casualty figures, and you can't necessarily believe what you know, NATO intelligence says, but the Ukrainians claim to have killed six, uh, four Russian generals. And the Russians uh, you know, have not produced those generals to show that this is not true. Well, I mean, that would indicate a colossally high level of Russian casualties. So I think that the um, the Putin uh, administration is radically scaling down its ambitions, and is now 
you know, looking for, you know, basically enough to be able to go home claiming to have won some kind of success. Uh, but I think that the, the, the plans to actually control the whole of Ukraine have, have gone. I just don't think the Russian army is up to it. Incidentally, one interesting thing, apparently, why the Russians are also so short of troops is that uh, Putin was trying not to use conscripts as far as possible, which indicates either that he has, you know, very low confidence in their fighting ability, or of course, that he is deeply worried about um, the, the political effects at home, if large numbers of conscripts start, start dying. Yeah, no, no, I don't, and for a good reason he would worry. I mean, if, if this is someone, uh, as is often said, you know, who felt the trauma of the sort of collapse of the Soviet uh, Union, very harshly, he's also someone who would remember that the sort of, you know, casualties during the Afghan war um, uh, uh, helped mobilize a, a popular opposition, uh, you know, with, with the sort of mothers uh, or uh, who had lost their sons uh, grieving. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of the casualty figures. And I, I try to be cautious. I mean, the what the Americans are claiming is like 7,000, which seems like a huge number because, um, I mean, like in the whole Afghan war of 79 to 89, they lost 14,500. So, the, I mean, if that's if those figures are anywhere near uh, accurate, that's a very um, troubling thing. Um, I think your point on the change of strategy, I mean, it seems like Putin, if we're trying to figure out his logic, early on actually believed his own rhetoric. You know, this is the, he, uh, that he believed, he thought Ukraine is not a real country. They don't have a nationalism. Uh, it will easily collapse. We will be welcomed as liberators, you know? And then, you know, like, this is something that neoconservatives uh, actually believe. It was not just rhetoric uh, on the American end. And it seems like Putin had the same kind of grand illusions. Um, and then is hopefully, I mean, I, I think your suggestion is that he's, uh, reality is uh, intruding upon him and that he will see, now sees he has to, um, you know, declare victory and then retreat. Uh, which is, I think, the best case scenario. Uh, um. Well, yes, but <coughs> the Ukrainians have to have to agree to that because yeah. otherwise, you know, the, the Russians will not retreat completely yeah. at that point. They have, they will, you know, if they can't get a peace agreement, they have to hold more territory. Um, at which point, you know, the Ukrainians will go on fighting. So there does need to be a formal peace agreement, even if some aspects. You know, the Ukrainian government has suggested that maybe, you know, the, the the official status of Crimea and the Donbass could be compartmentalized. In other words, you know, we we end the war um, and then we go into diplomatic negotiations about their, you know, their future status uh, if we can't, you know, agree on a compromise now. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, that's not like unheard of in the history of, of warfare. Like just like, you know, we'll put this off for another day. Uh, but the, what I guess the question that's been sort of um, bothering me or like it's easy enough to see sort of Putin, you know, he's been in power a long time, has increasingly cut off from outside voices. He's not someone who's like a very, you know, um, a, a, goes on social media or goes on media himself. He's kind of very, very old school, dependent on uh, his own um, uh, sources and maybe caught in a sort of feedback loop of people telling him what he wants to hear. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that all kind of makes sense for explaining what I think is, was a, a, from the start, a really catastrophic decision that was not gonna end well for him. Uh, mm -hmm. But the mystery for me 
and I think some of your work helps maybe solve this, is was there a broader support for the um, a, a war in like Russian society or from a cohort? And I think um, you wrote a piece in the Financial uh, Times, which I thought was very useful about, um, I guess what, what we could call the sort of Russian military industrial complex. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I mean, all the evidence is that this decision was made by a very small number of people at the top. Um, you know, uh, and incidentally, I mean, none of the people really close to Putin are generals. Um, that Shoigu, the defense minister, is, is not a professional soldier. He was emergency ministry chief. And also per, uh, Putin purged the senior ranks of the military several times pretty intensively. Now, he had reasons to do that because they'd become dreadfully corrupt. Uh, but I mean, I think the answer is that you have a, a, a bunch of yes men at the hand at the top of the, the Russian military. The, the wider elites, including the economic elites, were not consulted, you know, the big businessmen and except of course for the the state oligarchs, you know, ex-KGB people who Putin has put in to run large parts of state industry. Um, but you know, the, the people who in who we in the West call oligarchs, which which is mistaken now because they, they don't have political power, these big businessmen. And all the indications are that they were horrified by the war. They were not consulted. Um, if they had been consulted, I have heard at second hand, but from a good source, they, they would unanimously have advised against it. Because even if they didn't expect Western sanctions quite as harsh as this, they knew there would be harsh sanctions. Um, but they weren't told. They were not told. They were not consulted. Um, and uh, yeah, they are now very, very unhappy people. Uh, but they don't, you see, have political power now in Russia. And things will have to get, I think, very bad before you see a, you know, a coming together of the establishment to, to remove Putin, or, or shall we say, suggest very strongly that he, he stepped down. Because, you know, he has concentrated power so much in his own hands, and those of a very, very narrow circle. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about um, just about that, that, that narrow circle of um, uh, sort of, um, these are, this is sort of like, uh, from your account, I see them as um, uh, a hardcore uh, within the oligarchs, that the oligarchs in general, as you said, had power in the 1990s, but, you know, Putin really tamed them. But, but, but there's this core of sort of um, uh, uh, people with ties to the national security state who run military industries uh, on behalf of Putin. And th th that seems to be the real core of his political power. And well, he listens to. Exactly, yes. Although not so much military industries, actually, because uh, in part, but but large chunks of the, you know, the oil and gas industry as well, which yeah. is where the, the money is, because there's also, of course, a very corrupt lot. I mean, patriotic, they, they firmly believe in Russian greatness. Um, but they also believe in, you know, that they should be rewarded for their patriotism, shall we say. Well, well what's good for General Motors is good for America, as the mm. saying used to go. It seems like mm. they have the same mentality, right? Mm. Indeed. Indeed. But, well, I mean, in the past, Putin has also had, you know, genuine popularity in Russia, partly as the man who ended the anarchy and the outright, you know, looting of Russia in the 1990s. Um, and of course, the man who, you know, 
uh, did lead to very significant rises in in living standards, but also you know the, as the, the man who was perceived to have restored Russian strength and Russian prestige after the dreadful you know decline and dependence of the nineties. Now you know, or uh, well, I mean, he still stands for order in Russia, um, but obviously this war and Western sanctions have been a disaster for the economy, and I, I mean. The, the the state is going to have to make a pretty huge propaganda effort to present this war as a as a real success. I mean, particularly as you know, word of the casualties begins to filter home, and and also, of course, as um, the the resulting economic suffering really begins to bite. So uh, I I think that I, I mean I, I don't expect an early revolution against Putin. Um, but I, I think he will find himself in more and more political trouble at home. Well, yeah, I mean, like lo- losing a war or being seen to lose a war is usually like very bad for a regime of this sort. And, you know, there's only mm-hmm. precedents in Russian history for, uh, you know, lost wars um, leading to like popular turmoil. It seems, okay. I mean, in terms of like where the population is, I, I thought it was very significant that he didn't mobilize public support for the war before it began. And mm. I think that's actually one reason why people are taken by surprise for it. Because usually if you're going to lead like a war, you know, like, again, the um, American war in Iraq is a good example. We all remember all the propaganda that was done on its behalf. Uh, but this would indicate maybe, as you said, he was expecting a short war. And I think it's very significant that the the big wave of propaganda uh, as far as I can tell, started about a week after the war was, mm-hmm. um, uh, and was o- often very directly uh, sort of aimed at the anti-war movement. That like all these people that were carrying signs, you know, the Z, Z sign, um, they they, uh, they were often like making rants against the anti-war movement. So so mm-hmm. it does seem like this new the new attempt to mobilize public opinion. Um, is a sign of weakness or trouble or a felt need to counter anti-war sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we don't know how deep it goes. Uh, I, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Russian people, you know, the, the, there is a strong Russian nationalism. But, you know, the other thing is, of course, that um, the people, you know, the civilians who are being killed in, in Ukraine, you know, since so much of the fighting is in the Russian-speaking areas, I mean, the, these are in, in so many cases people who not merely look Russian and sound Russian; they actually are Russian. Yes. You know, they have Russian names. The children who are being killed are Russian children. Um, I think he has good reason to worry about the morale of Russian forces if this goes on. And and of course, the the, the fact that he's even suggested hiring mercenaries and volunteers from Syria and using Chechen forces. I mean, that would go down absolutely terribly with the Russian army and the Russian. And, and I mean, that indicates a, le- a certain degree of desperation and, and real shortage of, of manpower. And in fact, I mean, if you look at some of the seemingly, I mean, absolutely talk to military experts about this, I mean, crazy tactics that they've been employing. I mean, it would seem that they just don't have enough infantry, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, the, the sort of like at, uh, attacks on, you know, the uh, civilians. So it seems like, uh, as you say, acts of desperation. This is like, you know, like 
uh, you know, as Isaac Asimov used to say, violence is the uh, final resort of the incompetent. Uh, the, the, uh, and and um, no, I think that's right. Um, so in, in terms of what political repercussions are there, um, I don't know, uh, have you, uh, there were these reports of various generals being fired or um, demoted. Um, this, um, you know, like I also take to be like a kind of a sign of a war effort in trouble. And perhaps also, um, as you said, he's someone who ha has tamed the military. The Russian military maybe doesn't have independent political views, but I think the fact that uh, uh, purging generals in wartime is, is usually um, indication of maybe like some dissent in the ranks. What do you think? Well, dissent in the ranks or, or, or simply that they failed. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the, the Russian general commanding at Kharkov um, was clearly expected to take that city in, in, in the first week. He failed to do so. He's been fired. Um, I mean, the only commander who's done it all well is the commander in the, in, in the south. Um, quite why, I'm not sure that he, he's done so much better. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're also just being fired by, for incompetence and apparently a couple of senior intelligence. Uh, officers have also been been fired, but of course, um, that also builds up resentment against the leader because, after all, you know this is also scapegoating, right? I mean, you know, yeah. in the end, the buck stops with Putin. Um, he it was very much his decision, yeah. and if he got it wrong, um, well, you know, uh, I think people are going to um, are, are going to remember this. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, he, he's really associated his name with this war. I mean, it, particularly with the sort of displays right before the war where he was kind of dressing down uh, yeah. senior yeah. officials. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's very hard to see. I mean, again, one doesn't necessarily see a revolution right away, but this is a very, this is a real political problem for him. Uh, uh, no, no, I, 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 I think that makes sense. I, I guess the, the, the final thing maybe I want to hit on is the speech he gave a few days ago um, you know, uh, suggesting the sort of that there were these decadent um, uh, elites like in Miami, you know, who weren't with the war, but that, uh, you know, the, they, they will be uh, addressed and whatnot. And um, what was your sort of take on that, that speech? Like, it does seem, um, uh, again, Part of the part and parcel of the sort of you know trying to mobilize public opinion and and trying to give um, a nationalist spin on a war that he had not previously sold. Mm. Well, a nationalist spin and also a class spin, yes. because um, something you know you have to remember is that uh, you know part the parts of the educated population you know particularly from Moscow and Petersburg are of course horrified by this war and they also understand you know very well what the economic implications for Russia and for them will be but you know 70% of the Russian population has never traveled outside Russia um, and of course there are also deep resentments you know ordinary Russians you know ordinary working class Russians and provincial Russians uh, deep resentments of the people who who basically looted Russia and Ukraine in the nineties, and then retire and then moved the money and themselves to London or Paris or, or Miami. And it's very easy for Putin to to try to mobilize this kind of social and nationalist resentment against you know these elites in in exile. And you know you can oh look, I mean it's not 
in many ways, unlike a lot of Republican propaganda in the US, right? Yes. You know, it, it, it combines class, nationalism, region, you know, provinces against the center, culture, you know, ordinary Russians against the liberal elites, all of these, these things. It's, it's a, you know, it's a good move for Putin. But of course, uh, at some point, um, lots and lots of ordinary Russians are going to start suffering you know, economically as well. I, you know, up to now, the bulk of the Russian population, it's not really, it doesn't give a damn if you can't buy Prada or Gucci anymore in, in Moscow. They're actually cheering because they haven't been buying Prada and Gucci all these years. But, you know, it's a different matter if they lose their jobs or if, if there's colossal inflation, you know, and, and food yeah. prices go through the roof. Um, uh, and, you know, it's not that you're going to get you know, this is America's constant mistake. You know, it's not that you're going to get masses of Russians demonstrating in favor of America or in favor of Ukraine. I mean, nobody can give up Crimea as part of a peace settlement. Nobody. I mean, if, if some group, you know, if, if there's a real breakdown and, and some people in the elite fish Navalny out of jail, you know, like Aung San Suu Kyi and make him leader to try to you know, calm the situation down, absolutely convinced that he will never give back Crimea either. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of resentment in Russian society and among ordinary Russians and in the provinces about the corruption of the Putin regime, you know, uh, and, um, and all the sort of petty oppressions and corruptions of, of the Russian state and Russian society. And of course, if to that you had real economic hardship, then it's not difficult to see how you know you could see a you could see really serious um, unrest in Russia. Yeah, no, I mean I think that sort of analysis suggests you know there um, the best course of action is to somehow divide Putin from sort of broader Russian nationalism. That you know if there is some indication from the West that you know like they can accommodate a Russian nationalist who's not. Uh, uh, unhinged the way Putin is and willing to launch these wars of choice, uh, that would create real problems. I mean, the danger is that like Western policy will be to like uh, uh, punish Russia so broadly that it unifies mm. Putin with, uh, exactly. with Russian nationalism. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think if that does doesn't happen, I mean, it may well be because. If you look at you know the news from the Middle East about the surge in food prices, panic buying, you know I think you're going to get U.S. embassies around the world. In fact, I imagine they've done it already, saying, "Look, we you know we we we've got to get grain supplies moving yeah. again. We cannot afford you know more revolutions in in our allies." And then, of course, you know also um, you know the, the, there are really severe warnings now of a European recession. Um, yeah. And with the with you know a strong possibility of a U.S. recession and a global recession, well, you know, um, at that point Biden has lost the next U.S. elections. If nothing else matters to the Biden administration, that ought to. Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's right. I, well, yeah, I think everyone is kind of uh, considering worst case scenarios, and I think it's probably it's it's to the good that they are. I mean. Um, I think I, I mean, there's like so much more we could talk about, but I, 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 I mean, perhaps this is a good point to kind of, uh, uh, end it at. So I, I want to thank you for, uh, uh, being on the podcast. Uh, this has been very useful. It was a pleasure. It was so nice talking to you and I look forward to doing this again sometime. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks.